0: As I mentioned, it's Celebration Sunday because it was the first Sunday of November, 1982. Um, And when I planned this series, I looked at this day, uh, this first Sunday of November of 2023, and I thought, we're going to be studying the Holy Spirit. I feel like the appropriate message for that day will be to talk about how the Spirit's role in worship and in celebration. And that was the plan. that was the plan I shared with our pastoral team. That's the plan I shared with our worship team. And then last Sunday, as I was thinking about that, I said, you know what? I don't think that's the plan. Because as I was thinking over the last 41 years, and specifically over the last four years, I decided it would be more appropriate to talk about the Spirit's role in unifying His church. The reason that struck me is as I was thinking about the last 41 and specifically the last four, I realized that we're on the far side of a cycle that our church has gone through twice now, both cycles about 20 years in the making. You see, we organized in 1982 and from 1982 to 2002, our church experienced slow, steady, consistent, organic growth. And through those 20 years, a major part of the ministry that Faith Church did was through a Christian school. And not only in 2002 had the church grown, but that Christian school had grown. And they came to a place where they were drawing up plans to build a new building that would accommodate all of the people who were coming to be a part of Faith Church and Faith Christian School. But a season of division arose in the congregation and the congregation and the school were both cut in half through what's commonly called a split. The congregation and school struggled to function in the, the coming years. And then I arrived in 2005 and took the mantle from the founding pastor, Robert Helms. And we continued to struggle for a few years. And then we kind of found our footing and we experienced another season of slow and steady, consistent growth over the period of many years. To the point that we got to this place where there were so many people that were calling Faith Church home, that we had added parking, we had gone to two services, and then we experienced a season of division in 2020 and 2021. And our church was again cut in half. This time not through a single cut or split, but rather through a thousand small cuts. You say, today is Celebration Sunday, Pastor Daniel. Why are you talking about these painful chapters of our church's history? This doesn't sound like something worth celebrating. Because today I want us to recognize, in contrast to those painful chapters, I want us to recognize, in contrast to those difficulties, that we are blessed today to experience great unity. And I want us to recognize how desperately we need that unity to continue to make the impact that God has called us to make. I want us to see how desperately we need the Holy Spirit to grant us humility and grace and peace and unity. How many of you have heard the the phrase, those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it, right? Perhaps your history teacher repeated that as they were trying to convince you to learn history. That quote is most likely due to a writer named George Santayana. In its original form, it read, Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. And I found his wording interesting that he says, Those who can't remember the past. And probably for every one of us, there are seasons or moments or situations in our life that we just can't remember. Because we don't want to. Because we don't want to think about them. And when they come up, they, they cause a visceral, physical reaction in us. And when there are those places in our past, in our story, that we're not able to think about or talk about, it can be this place where there needs to be great healing. I want us to discuss this this morning because I don't want us to repeat That cycle, I want us to once again have a season of unity and growth and people coming to know Jesus and growing in their faith like we have experienced many times and we're currently experiencing right now. But I don't want to see in another 20 years that cycle repeat again. Today, I want us to see the importance of unity, how we achieve it, how we keep it. And I want us to learn that not only from our past as a church, but from the past of the church. And we'll find that in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling wherewith you are called. Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel. And I think it's interesting that he, he highlights this fact in this moment. They already know this. They already understand this, right? But he says, "I remember, I'm a prisoner. I beseech you as a prisoner. And I think the reason for that is he wants them to see that this truth that he's going to talk to them about, it's so important that Paul was willing to give up his freedom for it. and He would eventually give up his life for it. He's already reminded them earlier in this chapter that they are believers because God has drawn them to himself. He's called them and he's given them forgiveness and he is working to bring about their sanctification and their righteousness. If those words are unfamiliar to you, basically what it means is that he is working to make them more and more like him, to make them more and more good, less and less bad. And this was so important This was so meaningful. Christ wanted this so much that he was willing to give his life for it so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And so what we're about to talk about is so important that Paul was willing to go to prison for it. It's so important that Jesus was willing to die for it. And the stakes should be clear to us in this moment that what I'm going to talk to you about this morning is not flippant. It's not meaningless. It's so important. It matters so much. So Paul says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling wherewith you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul's writing to a group of Christians and the reason they're called Christians is because in Ephesus and every other city where the New Testament church was gaining ground, these Greek and Roman cities, as people were brought there by the changing of the landscape in the world that the Romans had done, they came there from Africa, they came there from Egypt, they came there from Israel, they came there from all of these places, and they gathered in these cities. They would do what you commonly see in large cities to this day. They would congregate in neighborhoods of people with the same ethnicity as them. It's for that reason that you go to some cities and there's little Italy, right? Or there's little China, right? There are places where people have gathered with the same ethnic group, the same ethnicity. And that's what was happening in places like Ephesus. And so when you saw a group of people, you could say, oh, that's, that's the Africans, or that's, that's the Jews, the Israelites, or those, those are the Egyptians, or those are the Greeks, or those are the barbarians. But there was one group that when you saw them, you couldn't classify them by their ethnicity, because they were made up of every ethnicity and background. And so they became called Christians, because they were people who followed Jesus, and they all looked different, and they were from all over. And this is the group of people that Paul is writing to, that God has brought together. And in chapter 2 of this letter, Paul would say, God has broken down the middle walls of partition among you. And that is not only a figurative idea of breaking down the walls that separate us, it was a literal idea. Because in the Jewish temple, there was a place where the Jews could worship and there was a courtyard where Gentiles would worship. But God has come in the form of Jesus Christ and He has pulled down the wall that separates Jew from Gentile, Greek and Roman, rich and poor, male and female, that we're all gathered together in one body to worship Christ. There are no such categorizations of the church of Jesus Christ. Like I said earlier, if you've been here for 2,132 Sundays or just one Sunday, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can become a part of this body. And that's what Paul talks about next in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism one god and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all there is no categorization you're together there's no varsity and junior varsity there's no rich and poor there's just one body the body of christ but this group though it's one body it's not all the same And the church, when it's gathered together, it's not just carbon copies. We don't all look the same. We don't all talk the same. We don't all have the same gifts. And Paul gets to that next in verse 7. He says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. God has given his people gifts, and those gifts are varied. And already in the worship service, there have been people who have stood up here, and they have the gift of music. And I wasn't up here for that part. You know why? I didn't get that gift. I can't do that part. Right now, there are people that are sitting with children. There are people that are taking care of small ones. They have a gift for that. They have a calling for that. They're different from the people on stage. As we, we were welcoming you in, there were people, it was their, their calling, their role to welcome you. They have the gift of hospitality. They enjoy speaking to you. We're one body, but we're made up of all of these differing individuals, all given gifts. And these gifts, they're given to us by God because He bought them with a price. Verse 8 says, Therefore, He says, when He ascended on high, He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. How did He give these gifts? He bought them with His blood through His sacrifice on the cross for us. Verse 9, Now this, He ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Jesus makes this possible because he died and he rose again. He descended to be among us. He descended into the grave. He is now risen and ascended to heaven, and he has founded and established the church to further his work. This work was so important that Jesus was willing to descend from heaven to be here among us. Is there a place you just don't like to go? I was texting with Don, our worship leader, the other day, and he said, I'm at the BMV. And I said, good luck with that. And I had to go this, this a week before last. And I... When I wake up in the morning, I'm not like, man, I hope we get to go to the BMV today, right? It's not something that I really enjoy, right? When I went, there were people, they all had papers, right? They had something they needed to accomplish. Nobody was there just hanging out, right? Nobody goes to the BMV because they have great coffee, right? Nobody goes to the BMV because, like, man, it just love, love the vibe in here. Now, let me say this the BMV in Indiana is great in comparison to the BMV in Virginia, okay? It's, it's a, it, like, you might think it's horrible, but let me tell you, Virginia BMV would show up an hour before it opened and get in line, okay? Completely, like, Indiana has it together. It runs well, okay? But even in a well-run license bureau, Bureau of Motor Vehicles, nobody's like, that's where I want to hang out this weekend, right? Your corner of the world might seem great to you, but it does not compare to the glory of heaven. And Jesus said, I'm going to go there. I'm going to leave heaven. I'm going to go there to be among them. And not only am I going to go there and be among them, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. Why? Because this is so important. Because He loves us. You go to the BMV, you're on a mission. You have something you need to accomplish. Jesus came here on a mission. He establishes his church to carry on that mission. Verse eleven says he gave, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. These roles—they're all varied. Their roles within the church, their callings within the church, but the mission is the same. Verse twelve: for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body. Of Christ till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and that's what we've been trying to do for 41 years here at Faith Church to build the Saints to equip the people to bring people closer and closer to the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ and it's interesting that he says here in verse 13 till we all come into the unity What's interesting about that is that in verse 13, he says this unity is something that we're working towards, but in verse 3, it was something that we were to maintain. Verse 3, we already have it and we need to work to maintain it. Verse 13, we need to be working towards it. Unity is something that when we are in Christ, we have it and we are blessed and we should work to maintain it, but it could always be better. It could always be sweeter. It could always be greater. And the unity that we could experience here on earth is nothing in comparison to the unity that we will experience between brothers and sisters in Christ and God the Father Almighty one day in heaven. So this unity is something that we desperately need and we must maintain what we have and we must protect what we have and we must be aspiring for more of. Why? And Paul shows us what the result of such a unity and such a growth is in the next verses. If we keep the unity we have and grow in unity, this is what we can see. Verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every weight or every wind of doctrine and by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. will be solid. We won't be knocked aside. Verse 15, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causing growth of the body for the edifying or encouraging of itself in love. The picture that is painted in verses 14 to 16 is beautiful. It reminds me of of, of two things. It reminds me first of someone who is at the top of their game, who has trained, who has disciplined themselves. They have practiced. They have grown in their skill. They are this incredible athlete. And this moment comes when they are in a game... And they're able to use coordination and strength and speed in a way that we say, I don't know how they just did that. That was incredible. Did you see that goal? Did you see that dunk? It becomes a top 10 sports center play, and it gets replayed again and again and again. There's a story about David Beckham, who's this incredible soccer player, and very early on in his career, he's in the middle of a game, And if you're watching this, you don't know that he played soccer every day. His father was this fanatical Manchester United fan who made him take balls every day. From the time that he was three, he would throw them to him, and he would say, you need to control a little bit more. He drilled him constantly all the time. David Beckham becomes this player, starts to play for Manchester United at a very early age, and he's in the middle of this game, and he's at the half mark, half field. And he kicks the ball directly into the goal from half field. And everybody goes how did he do that how is that possible that's incredible became this play that was played again and again and again and this was before the internet before somebody could send you a clip of it on your phone but everybody was watching this clip because it was such this incredible display it was this perfect coordination of strength and skill and speed And what Paul is talking about here in verses 14 to 16 is what the church can be when every part of the body is fitly joined together and strong and coordinated and amazing things happen. It sounds beautiful. So it reminds me first of all of that. It also reminds me of this this phrase in the screw tape letters. If you've never read The Screwtape Letters, I, I highly recommend it. C.S. Lewis wrote this book. And the, the, the setting of the book is it's, it's one demon mentoring another demon and how to try and tempt and mess with this person who's becoming a believer. And there's a, poor, there's a part in the book where the the, the poor soul that this Demon is trying to keep from becoming a Christian. He becomes a Christian. And the mentor demon writes to the younger demon, Wormwood, and he says, I'm I'm very disappointed that you've allowed this guy to become a Christian. And and you're going to be punished for it. So be on the lookout. You're in trouble. But, he says, there is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp, in Jesus' camp. And are now with us. All the habits of the patient, this soul that they're trying to keep from becoming a believer, all the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. So he's saying, don't give up. This guy, he's still, he's still got all these habits that are going to make it hard for him to follow Jesus. All of that's still in our favor. And then he says, there's another ally that can help us. He says, one of our greatest allies at present is the church itself. He said, don't understand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread throughout all time and space and rooted in eternity. Terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. The way Paul describes the church in Ephesians 4, 14-16 reminds me of him saying, a terrible army with banners. Stretched out across time and space, rooted in eternity, that makes the boldest of demons shake. That is what is portrayed in 14 to 16. That is what we are called to be. The demon continues, but fortunately, that is quite invisible to humans. And all your patience, all your souls that you are working on sees is the half-finished sham erection on the new building estate. And when he goes inside the church, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face. who bustles up to him and hands him a little shiny book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands. He gets to his pew and he looks around him and he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he's been trying to avoid. He says to the demon, you want to lean pretty heavily on these neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between the expression of the body of Christ and the actual faces in the pew next to him. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. You may know if one of them as a great warrior on the enemy's side. Doesn't matter. Provided that any of these neighbors is singing out of tune or has boots that squeak, has double chins, wears odd clothes, because your patient will quite easily believe that their religion must be, for, must be somehow ridiculous. You see, the church is made up of ordinary people, imperfect people, with double chins, triple chins, shoes that squeak, people that sing off tune. And what Satan will do is he will use the imperfections and the ordinariness of the people in our church against the mission of the church. I do not believe that it's an accident that both seasons of division that have come against Faith Church have come when we were seeing the greatest measure of the fulfillment of our mission and when we stood at the brink of a major step forward. You know, churches struggle to grow beyond a certain point because more people come to know Jesus, there's more and more imperfect and messed up people that are gathering together and that's just complex. But also, it's because Satan is at work against the church, seeking to cause division. It is spiritual warfare. And if you doubt this, look down a few verses with me at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil. And the word place in verse 27. It's the same word that you would get a foothold. It's the same word for an army. They go and they, they land on a beach and they set up a base. They set up a beachhead where they can land their troops, where they can land their supplies. And what Paul is saying is that when we hold anger in our hearts and it becomes bitterness, we are allowing Satan to set up camp, to set up a forward operating base in our hearts in our lives, in our church. And not only do we invite Satan to set up camp when we allow anger to turn into bitterness, this passage shows us that we hinder the work of the Spirit as well. Because look at verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. By the way, malice means hatred. Clamor could be drama. Verse 32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. You know what we see in this, this verse, in this passage? We see that the Holy Spirit is not some inanimate force but he is a personal God, like we've been talking about. And just as Jesus shows up and he can feel hurt and love and frustration and righteous anger, here we see that the Holy Spirit can experience grief. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You know what causes the Holy Spirit grief? When he sees that God the Son has given himself for God's people, has forgiven them of their brokenness and their sin, and he sees that while God has done that for Christ's sake, for each of us, we are unwilling to do it for one another. And it grieves the Holy Spirit. And in this spiritual warfare, anger and bitterness simultaneously gives advantage Gives room to Satan and hinders the work of the Spirit. And you know what's wild? Just this this isn't in scripture, this is my personal experience. My personal experience is that this does not usually happen over some major doctrinal issue. It does not happen over same some some issue of morality. It doesn't happen because someone's sleeping with someone's spouse. It's not stolen money. It's not false doctrine. It's simply this. Someone is offended. And it grows. And it grows. You see, anger and bitterness are like cancer. The earlier you detect it and deal with it, the better. Because it never stays dormant. It always grows. It always spreads. The longer it goes, the more it grows. And the problem we run into is when it's grown into this horrible, malignant, spreading mass in our hearts and in our church body. And even when we attempt to do the hard thing of surgery and cut it out, we walk away hoping, wondering, did we get it all? Or does some of it still remain? So what do we do. This is a serious threat. What do we do? Well, prevention is great. Best way to beat cancer is not get it. How do we prevent this cancer of anger, bitterness, and division? What did Paul tell us in this passage? Walk worthy of the calling which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You know what is a great preventative against division? Humility. Patience. Love. Pastor Eric will be preaching to us at the end of this month about all of these things that are the fruit of the Spirit, a product of the Spirit's presence in our lives. And when the Spirit is present, these things bubble up in us organically. In that same letter, in the screw tape letters, where the seasoned demon is writing to his apprentice, he says to Wormwood, Wormwood, he says, If the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat in the pew is a fanatical bridge player, or the man with the squeaky shoes is a miser... Your task is so much easier. All you have to do is keep out of his mind the question if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those other people in the next pew prove that their religion is merely hypocrisy? The demon continues, you may ask whether it is possible to keep such an obvious thought from recurring in a human mind. I tell you, it is. What does he say? He's saying, listen, the way that you get him to grow, to not like the people in the pew next to him, is show show him all of their faults and hide from him his own faults. Don't allow him to think about the fact that he has experienced grace, even though yet he is still imperfect. Make him to think on the fact that if those people are not yet perfect, they must not really be real. The demon goes on. He has not been long enough with the enemy. He's not been following Jesus long enough to have any real humility yet. And what he says even on his knees about his own sinfulness is parrot talk. At the bottom of his heart, he still believes he's run up a very favorable credit. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. Do you hear what the demon in the story is saying? He's saying, feed his pride and his ego, and that'll create all the division we need. In his book, James tells us that there's a difference between worldly wisdom and divine wisdom. He tells us that worldly wisdom is self-seeking. And he says that that self-seeking worldly wisdom will lead to division. James 3.15 says, This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Todd Parrish recently preached on this passage in James and he likened the earthly wisdom to the political savvy that so many people use and deploy. And it's really amazing. I mean, you, you watch it and it's, it's, it's kind of, you just, it's, it's almost like watching a magician work, right? Something will come out about a politician that you're like, oh, there's no way he can survive this. And somehow he twists it to make it like it's actually a good thing. Yeah, I know the reports are out that I cheated my wife, but you can know. That I'm always going to do what's best for me. And somehow that's good for us or something along those lines. And people are like, yeah, I like that guy. (laughs) And there's this worldly wisdom that always finds a way to make ourselves look good. in Sidney Sermon. This wisdom is subhuman, animalistic, cunning that oozes up from below. From the pits of hell. And this is important. Hang with me, okay? This is important. Because even in the church, even in the church, we can be tempted to think that the way we battle against the fact that our church is made up of imperfect, weird people is that we hide it, or we make it look slick, or we make it look flashy. Make the church out to be this group of incredibly successful people who never struggle. And everyone is delivered, and there are no problems because that's attractive and that'll bring people in. The only problem with it is it's a lie. And all it does is it breeds more division because it's self seeking. It's not real. How do we prevent division? We be real we be humble, we walk with Jesus, and we recognize that even though the person in the pew next to us is weird and imperfect, it's a beautiful thing that God has welcomed them just as he's welcomed me. And my brand of weird and imperfect might be different from yours, but it's just as broken and messed up. The Bible tells us that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one measures up. No one. We're all desperate for His grace. If there's any place that we should walk into with humility, it's here because it is only by the grace of God that any of us are able to gather here. It is only by the grace of God that I'm able to stand before you and proclaim His truth. I am not worthy of this. It is only by the grace of God that our team can stand and lead us in worship. They are not worthy of that. It is only by the grace of God that there are people that are able to stand in front of our children and teach them about Jesus. They're not worthy of that. We are not worthy to be called a part of God's church, but yet we are because God has extended his arm of grace to each of us. We are only worthy because we are in Christ Jesus. So what do we do when prevention doesn't work? What do we do when division arises? We follow verses 31 and 32 of chapter 4. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another. Tender-hearted forgiving one another. How? How can I forgive that person? What they did was wrong. They sinned against me. It was unjust. It was not right. Pastor Daniel, don't you agree that it was not right? I absolutely agree that it was not right. Well, how do I forgive them? The same way that Jesus forgave you, when you did what was not right. When you did what was unjust even as God in Christ forgave you. You see, we don't forgive one another because we we minimalize and downplay the wrong or the hurt. You don't need to get over it by saying it was no big deal. We don't make the sins against us small because they aren't. We make the cross of Christ big because it is. We don't make the sins of others against us meaningless because they aren't. We make the grace of Jesus Christ overwhelming because it is. We look at the cross. We look at Christ's sacrifice for us. And when we do that, it is so much easier to be forgiving and to be tenderhearted. Uh, you were so kind uh, a couple of weeks ago that you gave uh, our pastors, including me, uh, pastor appreciation gifts. And uh, one of those gifts was a gift card to a restaurant. And so I used that this past week, and I took my family to the restaurant, and I ordered a steak. Thank you. And they asked, how do you want your steak? And I said, what I always say, I, I want it medium. And for some of you, that's man, that's right on the money. That's right where you like yours. Some of you, you want it just rare, right? Like just barely hurt, barely take any skin off of it, almost still alive. Some of you, you want it well done. No pink, just black. You know, you want it <laughs> charred. We probably all differ on how tender we want our steak. But all of us, all of us need tender hearts. And how is that possible? You know, you make a a steak medium, just don't cook it as long as you would a well-done steak. Take it off the fire a little bit sooner. You and I, we live in this world that is a furnace, that is constantly charring us and burning us. There's no stepping out of that. How do we we remain tender? Paul tells us. We look at what Jesus has done for us. Even as God, in Christ, forgave us. And when we look upon the cross when we look on what Jesus has done for us, our hearts are tender. No matter how long we've been in the furnace. No matter how long we've been in the fire. Some of you, you've you've been in the fire for a long time. You're pretty charred and hardened hurt and scarred. Friend, I believe, I know that if you look to Jesus, your heart can be tender again and forgiving again, even as God repeatedly shows us mercy. Why is unity so important? Because we need to continually come together and be reminded of what Jesus has done for us. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.